getting awfully personal. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we touch upon today, because your word has brought it to our attention, the need for purity in our sexual lives. Lord, as we think through these things, we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We ask you to speak through your word, read and preached today. Lord, show us the way and help us to walk in it and help us to see Jesus as we walk. We pray in his name. Amen. It is about to be uncomfortable in worship for the next 25 minutes. It has to be. There's no other way. Therefore, hang on to your seats, but more importantly, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Hold fast to him as we consider the subject before us today. Derek was 23 years old. A friend had referred him to Harvest USA, and he launched right into his story with me. He had become a Christian in high school and had been very involved in his church's youth group. He told me that he'd really started to grow in his knowledge of Christ during those years. He had secretly struggled with pornography for some time, however. He told me that at the same time he was growing in his relationship with Christ, quote, the images and lies that porn promised me all began to compete with my walk with God. As he started to follow his desires, he increasingly compromised his own holiness. He began to view internet pornography on a regular basis. John, it soon became an addiction, he said, and it had gone downhill ever since. With every passing year, he found himself drowning in his secret sin, crossing boundaries that he never thought he would cross. He lived in depression and knew that giving in to these things had taken a devastating toll on his identity and all his relationships. He often felt sorrowful because of the way his straying had broken fellowship with God and other people. He admitted that he now isolated himself because of where his desires had led him. John, I rage against all sound judgment, even as I still feel for God, from time to time convicting my heart. He was sinking deeper now, sometimes several times a day, not just into pornography, but into sexually explicit chat rooms and cybersex. It had crossed over from a private thing involving just him to involving other people, albeit anonymously. God has already taken away the lampstand from my life, he told me. I am no longer a credible witness. I am narcissistic, proud, and self-righteous. The times I've been faithful to God are becoming more of a distant memory. And all this had happened by the time he was 23. He went on to say that deep down inside he wanted freedom from it all. I want to regain the essence of who I once was and who I know God wants me to be now. But I see no way out. Help, please. I know I need God and others. Is there any way out of this pit? Uh, That's a letter, a conversation that is included in a book by John Freeman, who is the president of Harvest USA, a ministry that deals particularly with sexual 
Temptations, Sexual Difficulties, and Addictions. It's a new book that he has published called Hide or Seek. It is indeed one man's story. But he represents countless men and increasingly many women as well. It's a particular story. It belongs particularly to him and its manifestations and the details that go along with it. But there is not one of us who has not felt the weight of verse 28 of Matthew 5. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And just reverse it around for women. God talks a lot about sexuality, which is to say that the Bible speaks openly, directly about this subject throughout. From the very first command, which by implication involves this subject, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, to the Ten Commandments, you have just ten, you're going to put this one in there, and God does. And he said, basically, this is no longer just a private matter, but rather this is a public issue for us as a community to talk about, and for me as the Lord and giver of life to give you laws to regulate this, to tell you what it should be about. To all then of the sections of the Pentateuch that contain very specific applications of this one commandment regarding our sexuality, what we should and shouldn't do in terms of our sexuality, to the Song of Solomon and its delight, in human sexuality, and then the words of the New Testament from Jesus to Paul and all points in between. The Bible has lots to say about the topic. Much of it is very positive. Some of it is negative regard to sexual immorality. And where it is negative, there are warnings associated with that. And where it is positive, there are commands to enjoy, to delight ourselves in what God has given to us. We have to talk then about this subject as well. If God does, if God put it in the Word, you and I have to talk about it as well, but it's hard to do that, right? First of all, it's hard for a good reason. There is a certain amount, a proper amount of intimacy and discretion that ought be used with this topic and that is appropriate between a husband and a wife. And therefore, it is very difficult for us to talk about sexuality in a casual way or in a formal setting like this. It's hard. The second reason, though, that it's hard to talk about it is not a good reason. And that reason is because we are so ashamed to talk about this issue. Ever since the very first sin We, humanity, we've desired to cover up our nakedness, to not talk about it, to avoid those things, to think that we can hide both from one another and from God and just let that part of the conversation die, be left alone. We want to keep the lights off, the door shut, the computer screen turned away from anybody who might walk in, and we want to keep the history deleted. We don't want God 
the NSA, our internet service providers, our spouses, our brothers, our sisters, our friends in Jesus Christ. We don't want anybody to know what we've been up to in the deep and dark places of our hearts, of the inner thoughts. And this is especially true for us as Christians. Our culture is doing a little experiment, at least part of our culture is doing a little experiment with this right now. They're trying to say, can we just say it all? Can we just put it all out there? Whatever it is, however deviant it is, let's talk about it, let's put it out there, and that'll be the solution to this. No guilt, because we'll talk about it openly. But the Christian looks at this, and the Christian realizes that we should be doing better. We realize that we'd like to have a voice within our, our neighborhoods, our culture, whatever you want to call it, uh, and we'd have to, like to have a life that goes along with that. That says God has given us a good gift, we should treat it this particular way, and we should be able to do that together, and yet we are ashamed. Now, I want to tell you that today's sermon is not going to consist in a marriage seminar. It's not going to be a broad-ranging discussion of our culture's views on sexuality, nor a condemnation of all things that are currently out there. Those might all be appropriate things to do, but what I am pastorally most concerned with is us. I get it. It's appropriate to address the other issues in various formats and even perhaps in a sermonic format. But the first concern is how this is impacting us, our congregation, we as people. By the way, I will just point out that PCRT, Philadelphia Conference of Reformed Theology, is being held over at Proclamation in about a month's time. And this topic on holiness, marriage, and sexuality is the topic of that conference. So if you'd like to, there's some information about that. Uh, either in the back or in the bulletin as well, and you can find out more about this. But we need to talk. And if we need to talk about sex because God talks about sex, well, what does God have to say then about sexuality? Well, of course, that's, as I said, there's a lot in the Bible about sexuality and what God has to say about it, so there's no way I'm going to be able to do a survey of that in a sermon. But if the command is don't commit adultery, then we can ask the question appropriately of the command, what is the command for? If it's against adultery, what is it for? And remember, we've talked about this really with each one of the commandments, whether the commandment is stated negatively or the commandment is stated positively, you can ask the inverse question. So if the commandment is you shall not murder, then the question of what is it for, it's for life. Well, what is this then commandment for? Let me describe it just briefly and joyfully. Whether we are single or married, what this commandment is for is purity. Purity in our minds, purity in our hearts, purity in our soul, purity in our body. Now, the old word for purity sounds odd to our ears. It sounds quaint. It sounds arcane almost but it is the word that was used in the Heidelberg Catechism, and had we done the Shorter Catechism and its explanations, it would have been there as well. It is the word chastity. This commandment requires chastity and purity, and it requires that whether you are married or single. The Heidelberg Catechism says that really well. 
It actually doesn't make any difference. It requires it of all of us. And what it requires, this commandment, is covenantal exclusivity. We're going to see how that applies a little bit later in the sermon. Covenantal exclusivity. God made the body. He made the desires. He made marriage as the context for the mutual enjoyment of those things. God is not against sex. God is for wonderful, life-giving, enjoyable sexuality within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. He's for it. He didn't look around for a way to express the joy of creation, the union between God and man, and say, well, marriage is kind of like this, sexuality is kind of like this, maybe I can use that as an illustration, as a metaphor. It's the reverse. God created marriage and sexuality for exactly this purpose, to reveal to us the depth of his love, the depth of his joy with people, the union that he seeks in covenant with his people. And one way to express then what is going on with pornography is we are settling for so much less than what God wants for us. We're settling, one could say, for junk food. But more than that, with pornography, what what you're settling for is eating out of the dumpster when God has set a banquet before us and said, enjoy. Whether married or single, God wants purity. And singles, unmarried, you need to hear something. Right now you have an idea, because every one of you has it. All of us did. You have an idea that when you get married, it will solve your sexual purity issues. It'll be the end of it. It'll be all taken care of at that point because you'll be married. That's a lie. That's a lie. There's something else going on in your heart. It will help. It's part of God's design. But you cannot look to marriage to solve these issues. You may think that it's easier for people who are married. It's hard for you. It's easier for people who are married. You are wrong. You are mistaken. God is against anything and everything that violates the covenant that violates the covenant that he has made with us and that violates the covenant between a husband and a wife. And that includes all of the things that we confessed, however uncomfortably, in our confession earlier in the service and more. I want to use that then to move us, the the uncomfortableness of that confession, to a second point. And I'm sorry, I don't have nice alliterated points today. But if the first point is God talks about sex and we then need to talk about it as well, the second is this, I don't want to talk about it because of the crushing weight of personal failure. Weeds don't need to be planted, they don't need to be tended, they don't need to be fertilized. They just grow and neither does lust. grows all by itself. 
John Freeman writes again, there's an intrusive immediacy to lust that often denies the long-term consequences and seeks burning satisfaction or gratification in the moment. We can be over our heads before we know it. That's the way it works. That's the way it manifests itself. Edmund Clowney, a wonderful theologian, uh, he's got a book on the Ten Commandments, How Jesus Transforms the Ten Commandments. It's one I've been using uh, for my own resources. He writes it this way. For even a Christian who has lived a pure life in the sense just mentioned cannot stand before Christ's demands for purity. What husband has not looked on another woman and lusted? What wife has not thought, why did God give me this husband? Would I not have been happier with another? What spouse, male or female, has not dreamed of using his or her body to impress or to manipulate? What single has not been tempted to idolize a longed-for marriage partner rather than trusting God for the sufficiency of his love? And if our fidelity in marriage and sexuality is weak, what hope do we have of standing pure in our fidelity to our Savior. We hear what he says, and we despair. Who is capable of such purity? Indeed, that's the question. That's what just kills us when we read these words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We, we hear the commands of God, and, and we, we know enough about the law of God, the word of God, and our conscience cries out much in the same way that God spoke audibly to Cain. When he said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, of course, Cain was dealing with jealousy, anger, resentment, Hate leading to murder, right? But do not those words, does not our conscience speak exactly the same way of this particular sin, of lust or fantasy, adultery? Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must master it. We hear those words. We understand those words. We, we have a sense. We have a sense that lust, that fantasy, pornography, adultery, that they're wrong. Even even non-Christians, non-Israelites had that sense as well. Remember when Abimelech almost sleeps with Sarah, Abraham's wife. God reminds him. And then Abimelech, in addressing Abraham, is talking about, I almost committed this great sin. He had a sense of it. He understood the awfulness of that which was going on. He understood the covenant violation that it would have been for him to have slept with another man's wife. We know these things. We hear these words, and yet we keep on doing it. We get locked into the pattern of failure, of great regret, of resolution We'll do better. We'll improve of temptation. 
a failure, grief, resolution, and temptation. Repeat cycle. And after a while, a year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, we come to loathe God. Why haven't you delivered me out of this? Why have you heard so many of my other prayers but not this one? We loathe ourselves. We know what we should do. And we find ourselves paralyzed, unable. We loathe others. We either seem to have it all together or won't talk about it with us. And we give up. We resign ourselves to it. We quit the struggle. Quit the battle. And just say, I guess that's the way it's going to be. And inwardly, we decay. I'm not sure, pastorally, if there's anything more debilitating and more crushing to the evangelical church, to the evangelical Christian in our day than this sin. Obviously, it's not new, right? We go back to the very beginning. It's not new. There's nothing new about lust and adultery. But like the development of nuclear weapons, the capacity now of this sin for obliteration is unparalleled. Unparalleled. Not like any other time. And it is killing us. According to statistics, hear it carefully, from a few years before puberty throughout the rest of life. It's killing us. So what do we do in the face of such an enemy? How do you strive for purity and sexuality when we're surrounded by this culture in which we live and the wickedness of our own hearts, the patterns that we've developed in our lives, whether of actual or thought patterns? How do you deal with it? When we have become overwhelmed and enamored with dopamine, with the neural transmitter that goes into the pleasure center and says, this is a good thing. Do it again. How do you fight something like that when your engines get all revved up at the wrong time with the wrong people in the wrong situations? Now, i got a problem as a pastor. The problem right now is I've got to give an answer to that. And I'm going to tell you before I even start to give an answer, this is an incomplete answer. It's more than can be said right now. I'm going to say something, but it's part. It's a start, and there has to be more that follows. What do you do? First and foremost... If anything speaks to your heart, it says this, we need a Savior. We need somebody to save us from this. 
It seems pretty clear we can't save ourselves. We need somebody to forgive us because we sure have offended a whole host of people, known and unknown to us, with our depravity. In this sin, as with every, we join with the publican. It says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And I've said it before. That prayer will suit you to the very last breath. The king is able. The king is willing. The one who forgave David, the one who sat with sinners, with prostitutes, spoke with them, interacted with them, he is able and willing to forgive us as we're broken, as we're contrite, as we hate it, and as we repent. Will you believe that? Will you believe it? Because there's nowhere else to go if you won't believe it. Some of you are sitting here right now, and you're going, are you kidding me? Of course, I've heard that. I I, I get it. What's the next thing? Or some of you can't believe that God could do that for you because you know how many times you're guilty. You know how many times you've broken your own resolution, your resolutions before him. Will you believe it? That Jesus forgives broken people and sinners who cry out to him. He brings us into union with himself. The the reading from 1 Corinthians that we read, your bodies are members of Christ. Loved you while you were yet an enemy. Your bodies are members of Christ. And being a member of Christ, he has filled you with the spirit that filled him as well. And he is willing and he's able to rebuild, to reconstruct that which has been broken. Secondly, we must turn from the idolatry of illicit sexuality, of immorality, to serve the living God. Over and over again, the prophets charge Israel with adultery. It is a spiritual adultery. Israel sleeps around on God, and the Bible says it just like that. You've played the harlot. You've gone after other gods. You have forsaken me, your husband. Adultery and idolatry are both violations of the exact same thing, covenantal exclusivity. Don't make idols, the second commandment. Why? Because the Lord, your God, wants you covenantally united to him and to him alone and not anybody else. Don't make idols. Don't commit adultery. Why? Because under that covenant with God, The Lord wants you faithfully committed to the one who is your spouse. 
when pornography and lust get hold of us, they become, and I'm going to use again John Freeman's words, a street-level master. That which, the one which dominates us, our master, which is to say an idol. An idol that we desire, a master whom we serve. We must turn from this. But here's what's critical to see for us, and we've talked about this now in Sunday school a couple of times and in a few sermons as well. As you turn from idolatry, the scripture says you turn from idolatry to serve the living God. Understand this then. God is not against desire. What many of us feel is is our desires are too strong for this illicit sexuality. God's answer is not stop and stand still. Wait, no, stop. God's answer is desire that which is good. Turn from the idols and serve the living God. God created the desires for a purpose that we might desire Him, that we might enjoy fellowship with one another. He created them. He's not asking you to be desireless. He is looking in us turning from idolatry to realign those desires, to get them going in the right direction, to say, put the pedal to the metal, but put it going in the right direction. I'm not asking you to be dead to desire, says the Lord. Desire me above all other things. To him first, to our spouse, to the dignity and the beauty of life, even life in a sad world. Christ and Christ alone. Turn from idols to serve the living God. And finally, brothers and sisters, we have got to talk about this. We've got to talk about it. It cannot be the unmentioned thing. It cannot be that I can talk to you about this and that and not talk about the biggest problem that I'm having in my life. You know it. You cannot defeat this idol on your own. You get it? It's a lot stronger than you. Freeman again pleads with us to stop roaming the sexual wilderness alone. Stop walking it alone. God didn't put his own people in the wilderness alone. He didn't put you in the wilderness alone either. Listen, one more resolution won't do it. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, good, this sermon really hit me right between the eyes. One more resolution. Sorry. Won't help. Now I'm going to say something pastorally dangerous. One more prayer won't help either. I bet you've prayed a lot. I bet you've shed a lot of tears. One more prayer won't help. At least not by itself. A whole lot of things have to come together to deal with this thing. Would you please, for the sake of your soul... For the glory of your God, find someone to talk to. Younger women, find older women that you can trust, who are godly, who can help you, who can guide you. Younger men, find older men. I will talk to you as your pastor. 
not hit you with a two-by-four, but talk to you. We can grow together. Now, I know that some people, I wish this weren't the case, but I know some people find it hard to talk to the pastor. Okay. That's why God made ruling elders and dads and other older men in the church. Talk to somebody. Stop living it alone. It'll kill you. It'll eat up your soul. Stop it. Our culture gets it. They won't admit that they get it, but they understand guilty feelings that are associated with sexuality. And so we've got a grand experiment going on to deal with the guilt. Here's how we deal with the guilt. Rewrite the rules. If I change the rules to make me not guilty, well then, I don't have to feel guilty. And frankly, I said our culture, the church has joined right along in. You can't change the Seventh Commandment. You can't change the Sermon on the Mount. It's the last warning in the book, if you've never read it. Don't take anything away. Don't add anything to it. You can't change them. Rewriting, redefining God's Word is not allowed. It will not put a balm of comfort on the gaping gash that exists within our souls right now because of this sin. It will not fix the problem. Jesus can. He is able to heal. He is the physician to the sick. He's the one who talks to prostitutes and sinners and in whom they find forgiveness and life. He is the one... Jesus, who created a community of broken people, of crushed people, in which we need to say together, yeah, I struggle. God help me. And through which we're then transformed into the image of God, restored and grow. May the Lord be for you your refuge and your hope. Let's pray.